Amen. Good morning. Boy, it's good to hear everybody singing praises to our great God. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our series on consistency. Consistency. And I would say, I was thinking as uh, this morning that this sermon is really uh, the basis for what we will be talking about for the rest of the fall. And I think if we get this, then we can, um, it'll help us in applying the other principles that we'll find throughout Scripture. Well, there was a man who went into a restaurant, and he said, Do you serve crabs here? And the waiter said, Why, yes, sir, we serve anybody. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I hope you're not one of those crabs, right? Amen. Winston Churchill said, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. And it certainly is. Attitude makes a difference. When I speak of our attitudes of the heart, I'm speaking about that state of mind towards something. Our general opinion or feeling about something. And God speaks about our attitudes quite a bit in Scripture. And for us to live a consistent life, it starts in our heart. It starts with our attitudes. It begins there. You know, the Christian life is not a matter of what you do, but it's a matter of who you are. Who you are. I think sometimes we focus so much on the what you do that we realize that we, we forget that what God is concerned about more than what you do is who you are that you are Christ-like, that you're a child of his. You know, I rejoice in the fact that I can say I'm a child of God. Amen? I don't deserve all that God has given me. Far from it. I don't deserve my sins to be forgiven. I don't deserve heaven to be my home. But God, through his mercy and his love and his grace has provided the opportunity and the means for me to be right with him. What a joy. Could I have earned that? No. Did I deserve it? Absolutely not. But God loved me, and he sent his son for me to provide a way for me to be right with him. That's awesome when we think about that. I don't have to live with guilt of my past, and I don't have to live with fear of my future. Because I'm God's child. What a joy. What a privilege. We can live with joy and peace in our lives because of who we are in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was declaring in the first three chapters of this book. Who you are. The blessings that come from being a child of God. And coming to Christ in faith changes everything. Changes everything. You know where it begins? It changes my heart changes this. Faith in Jesus Christ causes me to have a certain state of mind concerning God, concerning others, and concerning myself. True faith does that. It changes the way we view life. It changes my attitude. Or it should. My faith should cause me to respond in a certain manner. 
In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul gives us this command, this, this challenge. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know, Paul challenges to walk in a way that is worthy of who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned last week that this worthy means balance of the scales. It means that which should be equal. In other words, who I am in Christ should match the way I live. And that's what Paul is challenging us to do is who we are now as children of God, we need to live that way. We need to live out our faith. We need to be consistent in the way that we conduct our lives. This morning, I'd like for us to notice that living a consistent life begins with the attitudes in our hearts. It begins with me having a right attitude. It is entirely possible to do good things, to do things that, that outwardly look Christian and do it with the wrong attitude of the hearts. Amen? How many of you have ever done that? I'll admit it. There have been times that I do it just because I have to do it, but my attitude stinks while I'm doing it. Sister Anna May, I know you got the throat lodgers, but that probably was not the right amen. <laughs> no. Amen. Amen. Listen, performing the right deeds with the wrong attitude is hypocrisy. And that cuts a little harder. Being consistent in our walk as a Christian begins with my attitude. It's me living inside out. So what are those attitudes that we need to develop in our lives to be consistent, to have a consistent walk as a Christian? Well, Paul will provide a list for us this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, it's on page 828, Ephesians 4, and we're going to be looking at the rest of these uh, verses 2 and 3. And what we're going to notice as we go through this list, is that attitudes, these attitudes are connected. They build upon each other. Okay, And it's going to lead us to a point, and we're going to talk about that point a little bit more next week. But one builds on the other. And the first one we're going to notice is that of humility. Humility. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. It says, be completely humble. Now, humility is that elusive quality. Once you think you've got it, guess what? You just lost it. Now, I believe that having an attitude of humility begins with having a right assessment of who I actually am. You see, we lie to ourselves about who we are. We need to have an honest assessment of who we are. Here's who I am, a sinner saved by God's grace. You know, the story goes about Muhammad Ali, who was in his prime of his career, and he took off on this, this airline flight. And the stewardess reminded him to fasten his seatbelts. Well, Muhammad Ali came back brashly. Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. 
Well, the stewardess replied back quickly, Superman also doesn't need a plane. <laughs> Ali fastened his seatbelt. <laughs> he got a reality check of who he really is. And so do we at times. We need to have a right assessment of who we are. Now, the word here for humility means lowliness of mind. It's, it's thinking low. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to think low? Well, actually, in the ancient writings, this would be an attitude of servility. It was the attitude of a servant who thought of himself. It is thinking of ourselves as poor and lowly, low priority. Having a humble opinion of ourselves and a deep sense of one's littleness. That's what this word means. That is what it is to be humble. Paul says we are to be completely humble. Or literally, it's with all loneliness of mind. That is the way we are to think. Boy, that's so counter our nature. So counter. I like the way Andrew Murray defined this. He says it's the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. That is what it is to be humble. It's to realize that God is God, and guess what? I'm not. But isn't it our nature to set ourselves up as God? As the center of the universe, everything revolves around me. Humility is acknowledging who we really are and acknowledging who God is in our lives. Now, back in Paul's day, this characteristic was just anathema. It would be seen as weakness. In fact, outside of scriptures, this word would be used in a derogatory manner. It would refer to anyone who was weak, cowardly, and faint-hearted. It took Christians to elevate the virtue of humility. Because in the ancient world, it was not. You were viewed as weak. You were viewed as cowardly if you had and showed humility. You know, Ted Turner said... If I only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. Let that sink in. <laughs> now, I don't know if he was joking. But isn't that the way of the world? Our world elevates pride. It doesn't elevate humility. Arrogance is the opposite of humility. But in our culture, all the cinnamons that go with arrogance, and we would all say that comment of Ted Turner was arrogant. But when you think about all those things that define what arrogance is, egotism, pride, self-importance, those are looked upon by many as virtues in our society. Now, we don't want to admit it, but it is true. We want to elevate ourselves, and we feel we must elevate ourselves. However, I am convinced that it is pride that is at the root 
of all our inconsistent living as Christians. I really believe this. I look at those areas in my own life where I struggle. And if I look at the motivating attitude behind it, guess what it is? It's pride. I see it over and over and over again in my life. That the hardest thing to root out, the problem that comes that stirs up a lot of the other issues, is pride at its base. As one person puts it, pride is the root of all other sins because it puts the great inflated me in the center of our life. The desire to be clever enough to be able to dispense with God is the beginning of the slippery path that leads downward into a special hell of pride where it is always I who am right. It is I who never had a chance. It is I who is always misunderstood. Pride. Pride. And this is why Humility is at the base of living a life that is consistent with living a life of who we are in Christ. Humility has got to be the base. This one is the base. The other attitudes we're going to talk about build upon humility. But humility is fundamental for us to live a God-honoring life. Fundamental. When I learn to be honest and understand who I am, that I need God, that I am no better than anybody else, when I humbly submit to his guidance, when I acknowledge others as important more than me and quit being the center of the universe, then I'll begin to live a life that pleases God. Then I'll be able to live a life that gives God glory. But it's so unnatural for us in our flesh to do that. It takes God's help for us to do that. And by the way, it is the healthiest way to live. It is the healthiest way to live with humility. For not only me, but for all the relationships. I like a quote by Jeff Foxworthy. Yes, the comedian, the great theologian, Jeff Foxworthy. But he says something I think is, is right on the mark. He said this, Pride is the first step in people unraveling and companies unraveling and relationships unraveling. He couldn't have said it any better. It is exactly the first step in destroying all those relationships. Pride. Pride must be kept in check. Humility fosters good and healthy relationships. Ask my wife, right? Those times that I am prideful, there is a big kaboom. Those times that I'm humble and, and prefer her, then I'm doing what God wants me to do. And it goes both ways. Humble, humble, humility. That is the first characteristic of a godly life. Well, the second one I want us to notice is this, and that is gentleness. Gentleness. 
Gentleness is a byproduct of humility. Notice Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. A meek person is the opposite of someone who is vindictive or who harbors bitterness and resentment towards others. It is a quiet submission to God and to others. In the ancient Greek sources, the word was used to refer to medicine that calmed and soothed the spirit. Or it spoke of a gentle breeze that went through. Isn't that nice when you have a gentle breeze? The other night at the softball game, I think I was talking with Bill. It was just a beautiful night. And uh, the moon was out. It was warm. And this gentle breeze kind of came through. It was beautiful. So soothing. This word is also referred to a cult that has been broken and tamed whose power and energy could now be channeled for useful purposes. And it was used of people who were friendly, tenderhearted, and general, as opposed to people that are hard, rough, coarse, or violent. Now, we hear that word and we might think, well, that's weakness. It's not weakness. It is power under control. Power under control. Now, I know nothing about horses, all right? I, I'm a city boy. I rode bikes, not horses, okay? That's me. So you get me on a horse, I don't know what I'm doing, all right? I just hope I can get on the horse, all right? But I remember one time going to the forum and watching a rodeo. How many of you have ever seen a rodeo? And they got on the Bronkin uh, whatever that horse is, right? It jumps up and down and goes nuts, and the guy's just trying to hang on for dear life, right? And they sit there, and they time him. How long can this poor guy hang on for dear life? You know, at least they've got wise now. I noticed this the other day, that they at least wear helmets now. I mean, somebody had some wisdom there, but nonetheless. So they're hanging on to this horse for dear life, Right? And you can see the power of the horse, because that poor guy is just being shook all over, right? But then, I've had a few times where I've actually rode a horse. A tamed horse. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to say it was at Knoxbury Farm, but nonetheless, that's where it was. The point is that that horse still has all that power. It still has all that power. It is just tamed. It is under control. And that's what this word speaks to in our lives. It's not that we are weak. It is that our, our attitudes and the power that we have is under control under control. Have you ever seen someone who is out of control? Notice what the Bible says about someone out of control. I'm going to see if I can get that verse. Uh, is it up there? Oh, there we go. I can't read it. Okay, so like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. That's, that's Bible speaking about a guy who cannot control himself. Disastrous. Disaster is the outcome. How many of you have ever 
lost control, and regretted it later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Hands are coming up. Absolutely. We know what happens when we lose control. But the Bible also speaks, better is a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Better is that man. One who's under control. Again, this doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean that I don't stand up for what is right. You know, I think about our Lord. You know, our Lord was gentle. He was under control. But let me remind you that he went out and cleaned the temple, too. He cleaned the temple. In defining this term, I think Aristotle gives some insight. Aristotle said this virtue is between indifference and a short temper. He said that the gentle or meek person is praised for being angry under the right circumstances with the right people and also in the right manner at the right time and for the right length of time. And what he's saying is it's under control. Now, obviously, Aristotle is not inspired by God, but I think it does give us a good insight in what gentleness is. It doesn't mean I'm a doormat. Okay, but it certainly doesn't mean I, I act out in rage either. The gentleness is power under control. It's another word is meekness. And gentleness leads to our third characteristic. So we talked about humility. We talked about we talked about gentleness. And the third one is patience. Notice what it says here. Be completely humble and gentle and be patient. Patience is a characteristic of God himself. It can mean steadfastness and endurance of suffering, but more often in the New Testament, it describes reluctance to avenge wrongs. It is to be displayed to other Christians and to everyone else. We are to show patience it's not, in other words, payback time. Patience. John Christian explained this word from its etymology as meaning to have a wide and big soul. That's what it means. Patience is the exercise of a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. That's patience. Another word we use for patience is long-suffering. It's hard. It is so hard to be patient. You know, this could be dealing with trying circumstances for a long time or coping with difficult people. And I'm sure we've all been in one of those places, if not both, maybe at the same time. It is hard to deal with that. It is hard at times to be patient. Because we've learned to condition all of our problems in 30-minute sitcoms. Should be solved. Done. 30-minute sitcom, I'm done. That's the way we like life. Okay? This problem ends, boom, we're done, we move on. That isn't life. Problems continue on. Difficult people are there, and sometimes they don't go away. Right? 
And I am always convinced that the difficult people that God places in my life, when I have a right perspective, usually after I've had my Starbucks, I realize that maybe God has placed that person there to help me grow. But boy, I have to get to that place where I'm in the right mind to realize that so that I can show patience. So I can show patience. And again, being patient is built upon gentleness and humility. It's understanding who I am, who God is. It's keeping myself under control. That's how I can be patient with others. It's built on the other two. You know, I could not help but think about our Lord. And, and I'm, I've got a, somewhat of a lengthy reading here. First Peter chapter 2. And I just want to read the example of our Lord because I just think this is so insightful. First Peter chapter 2. Beginning, and I'm going to begin... In verse 18, it says, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Now talk about having to deal with patience. For it is commendable if a man bears up under, under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. That's commendable, being patient even when it's unfair. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Wow, now I don't like that. That little phrase there, I don't like. To this you were called. But that's what it says. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, now notice, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He trusted in God the Father. He himself bore our sins in the body of the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Jesus patiently endured the unjust suffering. And in it we notice that he didn't lose control. And he humbly submitted to the will of the Father. What an example for us when we're dealing with trying circumstances and difficult people. Our Lord is our example. He is the example of how to live a patient life. Well, patience, as we've noticed, patience, it, it begins with humility. We start with humility, then we start with gentleness. And then we go to patience, and patience leads us now to forbearance. Notice as we read on in Ephesians chapter 2, or 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient. Notice, bearing with one another in love. Now, I really like the definition of this one, putting up with each other in love. 
Listen, that is church life. Learning to put up with each other. Now, if you haven't realized this about our church, we consist of 200 plus sinful members. That's us. Now, sinful in the sense that we're sinners. There are going to be times, now, let me paraphrase this. I'm not advocating you go do sinful behaviors. All right, so let me, let me back the truck up just a little bit. Okay? We don't want to be characterized by sinful behavior. What I'm trying to say is that we still deal with our sinful flesh, with our nature. And sometimes, sometimes we cross each other wrong ways. It's true. So what are we to do? Well, we're to put up with each other in love. And if you can't, then you go to that brother and say, brother, you're offending me, and we re reconcile that right there. That's the way we deal with this. That's the way we should deal with this. And if a brother is committing sinful acts, then we need to go to him and say, brother, you can't do that. Okay? Don't do that. It's going to hurt you, and it's displeasing to God. So, but we realize that we have to bear with each other. To bear with one another literally means to hold him up. It is to put up with his faults, with his idiosyncrasies, knowing that I have my own. Hard to believe, but I do. Do tell. No, I won't. It is allowing others to think and act differently than you do without constantly trying to change them. Hello. I think that's a word straight out of my wife's mouth. Right? Just wanting to change me all the time. Well, we look at things sometimes two different ways. And I pray one day she'll see the right way. But uh, <laughs> I can say that because she's not here right now. <laughs> I'm joking. I am joking. <laughs> Amen. But why do we do this? Well, the motivation is love. We learn to deal with each other because we love each other. And when we love like we should, then we'll be able to put up with each other. And that's what we should do. A person who has a forbearing love not only endures whatever people may do to him, but notice, but also loves them in spite of it. Loves them in spite of that. That's a choice. That's a choice that we make to love like we should. Jesus said to love your enemies. And this is, it's hard enough for love each other, and we're not enemies. one thing to, to endure those things that hurt us and annoy us, but it's totally another thing to love besides it. It's hard. Absolutely it's hard. But can it be done? Absolutely. How? By God's help. By us acknowledging who we really are and by us acknowledging who God really is. We can learn to love each other like we should. So the foundation for living a consistent life with our calling is that 
we are people who are humble, who are gentle and patient and forbearing. That is the foundation for us. If we want to live a life that matches who we are in Christ with the way we live, then these attitudes must be in place in our hearts. Okay? That's how we balance the scales, by living this out in our lives. Well, this leads to the final characteristic. And I can never see up there. My, there we go. And that is in eagerness for unity. Eagerness for unity. Notice verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Each of these characteristics have been leading us to this place, which is of great importance. Unity within our church family is of great importance. Absolutely. We are to make an effort. We are to be eager, to be diligent, to keep the unity. Keep the unity. We need to understand that this unity is given by the Spirit. Notice how he says it. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity is here because of the Spirit. It's not something we can create. It's not something I can program. We can't take all of our people up to the camp and do a ropes course and have unity. This is unity that is given by the Holy Spirit. That's the unity. And our goal is to preserve it faithfully by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. That's how we keep the unity, is by walking in a way that pleases God. By developing these attitudes in our heart, we will keep the unity. Again, are we all going to see everything the same way? Absolutely not. Are we going to have challenges? Absolutely. Are we going to have disagreements? Absolutely. But what is the key? The key is how we handle those. Not whether we have them. It's foolish to think that we're going to never have any problems. Not true. But if we're all seeking to preserve the unity, if we are all seeking to please God in our lives, we'll find and we'll protect the unity of the church. And it says that we do it in the bond of peace. This is, this is what we will have, peace. When we're seeking peace, we'll seek unity. Disunity originates in pride. Mark it down. Mark it down. Disunity originates in pride. And thus we can see the progression. Humility leads to gentleness. Gentleness leads to patience. Patience leads to forbearance. And all four of these characteristics preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's how we will have a healthy, unified church. That's how we will be healthy when I live a life that is equal to who I am in Christ. 
These virtues and the supernatural unity to which they testify are probably the most powerful testimony the church can have because they are such a contrast to the attitudes and the disunity of the world. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. What a testimony. And that's what should be seen and evident in the way that we interact with one another. Now, I, I didn't write this in. Uh, this is kind of off my notes, but... You know, um, someone might say, well, you know, I, I think here we see the importance of being connected with the local body. Because you cannot live out the one another's not being connected to a local body. Now, somebody said, well, what if I, you know, I could just love any believer anywhere. And I, I love the response of one pastor. He says, well, listen, if you can love any believer, do me a favor. Go get connected with the church. Learn to love a certain amount of people for 40 years, then come back to me and talk about loving others. And you know the point he is making is that this is more than just, well, it's a commitment that we have over the long haul for each other. That is where your love will really be seen. You know, it's easy in our society when we get upset, it's easy just to bail. Okay, marriages do this all the time. We're done. You burn the toast, you're gone, babe. It's out, right? I can't deal with it anymore. That is our society, right? We take the easy way out instead of learning to love and grow. And that's why being connected and committed to a group is so important. And that's how God's glory is seen, when we can love each other despite the things that may annoy. Well, let's wrap this up. The key to living out these characteristics of the heart is to get rid of something first. That's really the key. So let's quickly just kind of go through a couple of these things. Number one, in order to have humility, we must get rid of our self-centeredness. That's pretty simple. Give up self-importance and honor. At every turn, Christian faith is an assault on our self-seeking. We are important, but we're not to seek importance. I am important to God, but I'm not to seek that. We are not the sinner. God is. God is. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that we're to think of others better than ourselves. And so should we. But how do I do that? Well, again, Andrew Murray gives three great motives. Number one, looking at Jesus, looking at our fallen state, and the, looking at the mystery of God's grace. What does that mean? It means when I look at Jesus Christ, I stand amazed. I, that account that I just read to you, that would not have been my natural response. When I look at him, I stand amazed at this perfect man. He's the standard, and I don't measure up to that. And then when I look at my fallen state, I realize that, you know, man, this pride just rears its ugly head all the time. It makes me get a proper assessment of who I am. 
And then I think of all, above all this, of who I really am, that God still loves me and by his grace he saved me. How can that not humble us? How can that not humble us? And this is why this is the base, basis of the first command. I didn't deserve God's grace, but he loved me and gave it to me. Well, the second one, and that's this. Maybe. In order to have gentleness, we need to get rid of the harshness. Oh, it's so easy to respond harsh, sharp. It's easy. We have to respond in a way that cares about the other person. There must be grace in our interaction with one another. And listen, I struggle with that just as much as anybody. The more frustrated I get, it seems like the harsher I get. We need to just help God. Help me exhibit grace in the way that I interact. Help me love my brother like I should. Well, the third one is, in order to have patience, we need to get rid of our own timetables. Our own timetables. The I want it now, I've got to have it now attitude has got to go. The attitude of not waiting for anything is just another expression of our self-centered it is. You know, I get frustrated when Del Taco takes more than five minutes. I look at that timer. I say, look. <laughs> Just showing my pride and my self-centeredness. Finally, in order to have forbearance, we need to get rid of our own rights. Insisting on my way or my comfort just causes problems within relationships. There's a way that we can get along. There is. Is this easy? No. Can we do it? Yes. But it takes God's help. It takes God's help. And a life that is worthy of the call is a life of fellowship. And that's what Paul is showing here. It is a life connected to others in a local body of believers. And I think all of us desire to be a part of a church that is unified, that is vibrant, that has a testimony, a good testimony in our community. But where does that start? Well, it doesn't start by me shoveling this sermon to the person sitting in the net behind me or shoving it to you and not looking at my own life. It starts by me applying these attitudes in my heart. That's where it starts. I can't change anybody else. You know what? That's God's work. That's God's work. I need to be responsible for changing me. And that's where it begins with each one of us, to take these attitudes and apply them into our heart. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together to just kind of look at these words and, oh, how they are challenging. Father, it's so easy for our attitudes to just get knocked um, out in a way that's just not proper. It's so easy for us to respond out of pride. It's so easy to respond with harshness. It's so easy to be impatient. It's so easy to want my way in everything, Father. Help us as your church here 
to develop these attitudes, these characteristics in our lives. And we know, Father, that it begins by us first acknowledging who you are and having a real assessment of who we are. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Show us those areas that we need to work on. Show us those attitudes that are just not consistent with being your child. And, Father, it's my prayer that as your church here, that we would be a wonderful testimony of, of, your, of your grace and your love. And, Father, I do pray for the person who may be here this morning that cannot say they even have a relationship with you. I pray this morning that you would begin working on their hearts, that you would draw them to you and realize that they can find peace and joy in knowing their sins are forgiven by placing their faith in your Son. So, Father, it's our prayer, again, as always, that everything we do and everything that we say would be consistent with who we are and bring you glory and honor. We thank you. We give you praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. I don't know what's on your heart. Maybe you've just got some issues you got to give over to God, some attitudes. Hey, the altar's open. Maybe you don't know who God is. Hey, I'd love to talk with you about who Jesus Christ is. Maybe you need to say, you know what? I need to be a part of a church family. I need to be connected so that I can live out the one another's. Come see me. Whatever your need is, as we sing.